Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, I'm Andrew Neal, and this is The Backstory, a series of in-depth interviews with people who have the power to shape events and to influence our understanding of them. In this episode, I'm joined by a businessman who's had a long and distinguished career working in Britain's retail sector. Justin King was director of food at Asda and chief executive of Sainsbury's for 10 years before stepping down in 2014. He now sits on the board of Marks and Spencers as a non-executive director. In this interview, we talk about the cost of living crisis, and what role, if any, supermarkets should play in trying to keep prices down. We also discuss how the industry has changed during his career and how the major supermarket chains compete with discount retailers and online giants. You'll hear him mention FMCG companies. That's companies that make fast-moving consumer goods. This is the backstory from Tortoise. Justin King, food prices are now rising fast. How long will that continue? Well, I think it's very difficult to say because the uh, inputs that are causing food to rise fast are quite structural, quite worldwide, um, and of indeterminate length. My own view, and I've been saying this for some while, that uh, I felt inflation would be greater than people were expecting I was talking about 10% inflation when the sort of central case that the Bank of England seemed to be working to was that it would be perhaps uh, five at most. And I thought it would be more persistent. I, I see no reason at all why this won't persist through this year and probably most uh, of next. It, it's important to remember, of course, that, um, that the, the maths of inflation is that if you do have a slug of inflation, sometimes uh, if the particular inputs stop rising, you still have high prices, but you don't have further inflation. And that feels quite likely as far as energy is concerned. Um, maybe it hasn't peaked, but it seems uh, likely that perhaps next year's energy prices will be lower than uh, this year's. And that will, of course, have a dampening effect on inflation. But I think the labour component of inflation, which is a big part of food inflation because of the labour costs in the supply chain, I think that will be much more persistent. I could see that being a two three-year pressure, because we are edging towards some of the circumstances, Andrew, people like you and I can remember, uh, back in the 1970s, where uh, people realised that just because they got a 
decent pay rise, uh, that their standard of living had not increased because inflation was outstripping it. And I guess we're starting to see that in some of the industrial relations noise uh, that's happening now. So are we looking at more then than just a spike, a temporary spike in food prices? Are we looking at the era of cheap food coming to an end? Well, I've said, I think I'm on the public record of saying, I think the uh, golden era, if indeed that's uh, what it was, of cheap food or much more affordable food than has been the norm, if you take the longer view, um, is definitely coming to an end. If you look at the big macro figure, we in the UK spend uh, 10, 11, 12-ish percent on average, uh, because of course it's very different if you're not wealthy. Uh, of our disposable household income on food. That's low in historical terms. If you go back to when food rationing ended uh, post the Second World War, at that time, the average household would have spent 40, 40%. But it's also low by European standards. The average in Europe is 16, 17, 18. The French, for example, have figures about 18 to to 20. Um, And that's partly uh, because we have a somewhat different relationship with food than perhaps some of our European cousins. But it's partly because we've chosen to deprioritize it in household budgets. That's the reality. And so uh, we are, uh, for lots of reasons probably, going to need to reprioritize food in household budgets, not just because it's less cheap, but also because um, if you look at the debate about the obesity crisis, um, eating uh, less but better food, better for us, better for the environment, uh, is clearly going to be part of the picture going forward. Can we just unpick a little bit of what's going on here? Because uh, the war in Ukraine is being blamed for a lot of the current rise, and clearly it's having an impact and may indeed uh, have an even bigger impact if they can't get these uh, grain exports out of uh, the uh, Ukrainian coast. But food prices were rising before the invasion. Uh, are you clear what the overall causes are? You mentioned labour, that's clearly one. What else is causing the rise in food price? Well, I think you, if, if you were to take, uh, let's say, a 10-year view, I, I think that figure I quoted earlier about uh, low percentage of household incomes, uh, actually, uh, um, for most of the last 10 years, the percentage we've been spending on food has been growing. We've started to buy slightly better, slightly more expensive. You know, If you define expensive in terms of, pence per calorie, for example, because we have started to buy other things than calorific value. We've bought more free-range eggs, for example, and they're more expensive. People have bought more organic food, and that's more uh, expensive. And of course, a big part of, of why we've spent more on food, if you take that to any of you, is we buy, we bought more time. We bought more preparation. We, we buy a prepared salad, which means the cost of that labour is in that salad, rather than preparing that salad at home. So all of those were starting to tickle up anyway, um, food as a percentage of our household budgets. In terms of the inflationary pressures, I believe, um, uh, quite uh, significantly, they started with Brexit. Brexit um, was a significant disruption to our food system, one which has led to and will continue to lead to increased costs. And I was uh, very public in the Brexit debate saying that uh, that would be the case, and I think that's proven to be so. We can talk perhaps a little more about that. COVID has been layered on top of that, and then, of course, the world events uh, 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 that flow from Ukraine uh, on top of that too. So it's multi-layered over time, and you know, to some extent, if you like, it, it, it's, it's stretched to the balloon to the point that it's gone a bit pop. 
You say that Brexit has played a part in the food prices, food price rises, but food price rises are a global phenomenon. They're certainly a European phenomenon. They're an American phenomenon, as are labour shortages too uh, in all of these places. Yeah. So how do we discern the actual impact of Brexit on food prices? Um, gosh, I, well, look, that's very difficult. And, and of course... Um, Did you uh, said that Brexit has yeah. caused it. If you're, if you're a Brexiteer, no doubt um, you'll take the view that uh, it's de minimis and you can't discern it because it's so small. Um, if you're a, a frustrated Remainer, which I guess uh, I am, um, you take the view that it's more significant than it's been given recognition to. But, neither, but neither position is helpful to actually no, try no. to, but, to, try and to establish a, the facts. Yeah, let me have a stab at answering the question then. Um, so, look, why is Brexit so significant? Our food supply chain in the UK was completely integrated with our European partners. Something like 40% of our food uh, comes from Europe in one way uh, or uh, another. If you grow a chicken in the UK, um, typically that chicken will be sold in half a dozen, six, seven, eight different countries, almost all of which... We were used to saying chicken, the knobbly bits go to China or Russia. Um, but most of it will go somewhere to Europe. We're very integrated to Holland, very integrated to Poland, for example, in chicken processing. We have created a disconnect in that processing. And, of course, when you see the debate that we're now having about trade agreements, for example, um, chicken has become quite an iconic product in the debate about um, an American trade agreement because... Sure, I, I, are... I, I think we're... I, I want to interrupt you because we're in danger of becoming the chicken are. Right. But my point, I'm not... I, my purpose in, of the question was not uh, to, to question the concept that Brexit would have had an impact for the reasons you've yeah. been giving, that's clear. But what my question was, where, given that food prices are rising ev everywhere... Is it possible to discern a particular Brexit premium, if I can put it that way, on British food prices? No. I, 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 look, of course, I'm sure an academic could sit down and at any moment in time tell you what they think uh, that is. Um, uh, it was always my view, if, long before obviously COVID and um, uh, world events uh, have changed the matter, that Brexit would probably create, in addition to whatever currency impact. So it had a currency impact. The minute it happened, it put about 5% inflation into food inside the first 12 months of Brexit, purely through the impact on uh, currency, because most world food is traded um, in the two most important world uh, currencies, euros and dollars, and our currency declined very significantly against that. And year round, about half of our food is bought in dollars and euros at world prices. So currency had about a 5% slug. It was my view that when all of the Brexit effects had worked through the system, it would probably be about 10%. Okay. Um, but you know, everything else means it's very hard uh, to see that. The reason I was choosing chicken is that chicken very materially is affected. Ultimately, chicken is going to be 20 30% more expensive in the UK unless we embrace US-style production systems which is a matter for a very different debate um, as a consequence of Brexit. We're all agreed, we can all see it when we go to the supermarket, 
that prices are rising, and you suggest this isn't going to go away quickly, which I think is almost certainly right too, what should supermarkets be doing about it? Well, supermarkets' job um, is to represent their customers into the supply chain. Their, their job is to, if you like, uh, hold back the tide first and foremost. Um, because, of course, you know, when you get this kind of structural pressure, it does become, frankly, um, a very convenient excuse for every manufacturing producer to say, oh, we all know that inflation's happening, we need to push our prices up. And supermarkets should start by saying, no, let's have a look at the real detail here. So they need to hold back the tide, and that's their first job. Tough but fair uh, negotiations with the supply base. But secondly, they need to do what they can in terms of their own cost structure so they don't have to pass things on. In truth, that's not much. You know, supermarkets are 3 to 4% net margin businesses. So you know, even if they squeeze their margin 50%, they still can't really make a huge difference. And then that creates all sorts of other problems in terms of their profitability and so on. Uh, and so they can't invest for the future. So that's not going to really be a big part of the picture. And then the third thing is they will change what they sell. You are undoubtedly going to see an emphasis on products that um, deliver better value for money in terms of grams per penny. Now, in previous recessionary-type pressures, you see the consumer in supermarkets switch out from more expensive calories to cheaper calories. But the good news, if you're a supermarket, is that part of the shift is also out of calories bought outside of supermarkets, so people do less takeaways and buy uh, premium uh, food. Now, I'm a director of Marks and Spencers, so this has to come with that health warning. But uh, Marks and Spencers often do quite well um, in, when these kind of pressures, because um, if you like, they set, sit in the natural place to catch the consumer that's maybe taking less takeaways, maybe eating out a little bit less often, but still wanting to enjoy their food at home. And of course, Marks and Spencers sits very much in that space. So you see this almost kind of shift through the whole cal pence per calorie continuum downwards. But isn't it the case that supermarkets are actually doing rather well out of rising prices? I mean, I see the latest financials from Tesco and Sainsbury's. They show a doubling of pre-tax profits. Nice if you can get it. Yeah, well, they, um, COVID net um, uh, enhanced their profitability in the short term. But of course, part uh, of the reason that those figures have doubled or whatever the figures are for uh, precisely for those businesses, is that they also had a step back. You know, the, the really short-term impact was that their profitability was uh, impacted. Um, uh, part of the reason for that was, although they uh, qualified uh, for FOLO and uh, business rate um, assistance from the government in very large part, it wasn't universal, uh, but in very large part, supermarkets handed that money back to the government. So I think if, if I were today still a current supermarket uh, Chief Exec, I'd say that's a pretty unfair question, Andrew, because um, actually we took a hit. Uh, they haven't doubled. They've just gone back pretty much to our historical uh, norms. And, and if you look at their uh, share prices, that's what their share prices say. Asda have just announced they're putting the price of a litre of petrol up by 5p. The RAC says a single-day price hike like that is unheard of. Uh, is that what we should be expecting now? I mean, it does seem that... There's no attempt to absorb rising prices. They are being passed on to the consumer, aren't they? Yes, they are. And I think it, it in part goes back to my earlier observation about the job of supermarkets, which is to you know push back on behalf of customers and not to get sucked into this idea that it's a um, you know a, a rising tide and that you can just sort of 
join in. That's not supermarkets' jobs. And so I would be, um, I am uh, very critical uh, if I see supermarkets putting prices up which are not justified by the cost of goods. And there is absolutely no doubt that supermarkets are competing less at the moment on the price of fuel than they have done historically. Um, There isn't a price war on fuel. Um, And I think there are some reasons for that. But the reality is, is that fuel today for all supermarkets is more profitable than it's historically been. We know that prices are rising and we know that there's a limited amount that supermarkets can do about uh, about it, uh, only at the margins. But in these difficult times, haven't they, if only for consumer confidence uh, and for integrity, haven't they got a duty to be transparent and not try to hide price rises? I mean, I've noticed the way that special promotions are just quietly changed from two for three pounds to two for two pounds. Should they really be doing that? It's a sleight of hand. Uh, yeah, but I think, <laughs> yes, but, you know, the, the, the supermarket retailing has always been a little bit sleight of hand. You know, we are trying to create a delta between the money you're investing and the perception of, of how much you've invested. You want consumers to believe you've done more from them than, than, than you actually in reality have, because <laughs> that's the competitive marketplace that you're in. And what you try and do is you try and, if you like, pull the levers that um, are most geared in customer behavior. That's why the observation about them not competing on fuel prices, I think, is so relevant, because historically, fuel has been a go-to product for supermarkets to compete on price. And the reason is because it was highly geared, back to my point about pulling the right lever, to changing where people shop, because people would find where fuel was cheapest and then do their grocery shop there at the same time. Now, I think one of the things that COVID has done is it's changed a little bit people's kind of um, willingness to shop around. In fact, the data shows it very clearly that people shifted to um, a big grocery shop, still doing a big grocery shop. You know, the death of the big grocery shop has been much overstated. It's still six out of every 10 pence that we spend on grocery food is is in what you and I would recognise a big weekly grocery shop. And then topping up from convenience stores, from businesses like Marks and Spencers, from discounters as well. You know, a big part of what's driven discounters is top-up type shopping, not destination full grocery basket type shopping. But for whatever reason, it is the supermarket's assessment at the moment that they cannot move that shopping basket around by lowering the price of fuel. But we've got special promotions that no longer seem so special. And then we have shrinkflation reducing the package or the portion size, but keeping the price the same. Again, designed to dupe the customer. Is that, is that a, a proper way to do business? Well, uh, uh, there's so much to unpackage in that, in, in that question. You know, if, if, you, if you're the average um, FMCG company that um, uh, feels like you've been under siege for the last 20 years to reduce the size um, of your products because they're contributing in some way to obesity, you uh, issue a somewhat wry smile when you then get criticised for doing it as some kind of cheating way to hide a price rise. But they wouldn't, the be, they wouldn't be criticised if they shrunk the size and shrunk the price as well. But they're and, not and doing course. this for obesity reasons. They're shrinking the size <laughs> well, and they, keeping, they, the, keeping they, the price. They are doing it for obesity reasons in many instances. But, of course, many have tried to piggyback uh, masks' price rises on it. But, look, here's my view. The, the customer 
gets it. You describe, um, I think you used the phrase actually, sleight of hand a, a, a few minutes ago. Um, my experience of the consumer is you can't con them. You can't. They see it. The reason you and I are discussing the idea that people have hidden um, price rises when they've reduced the size of products is because it's true that they have and consumers have spotted it. Now, you know, my advice would always be, you know, your point about transparency is given that consumers are going to spot it, however you try to hoodwink them, if that's what you're trying to do, don't try and hoodwink them because the number one thing consumers want to do is to trust to trust that you are doing a great job for them. And if you undermine that trust, you are undermining the foundations of your business. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I mentioned earlier how supermarkets may be doing quite nicely out of rising prices, but I wonder if there isn't a, a long-term danger for what I would call the mainstream supermarkets like Tesco and Sainsbury's and Morrison's and so on. Uh, because in the past when you've raised prices during a recession, for example, your discount rivals, Lidl, Aldi, Netto and so on, they took market share and it took you has taken you a long time to get that market share back. Is that, uh, is that a danger for you now? Are we moving in much more to the age of the discount rivals? No, I don't think so. If you look at the market share of uh, Aldi and Lidl, the two uh, biggest discount grocery retailers, um, uh, their market share is roughly equivalent today uh, to that that a business called QuickSafe uh, had in the 1980s. So I think it's wrong to characterize the idea that uh, discounters are a new idea. They've always been part of this market. They are uh, at something that is close to an all-time high in terms of market share. But at 13, 14%, which is roughly what their market share is today, by European standards, that's still relatively low. And one of the reasons for that is that supermarkets in the UK have competed very effectively with them. It's very hard. You can't stop Aldi from opening a bunch of shops. And if you open a bunch of shops, they're going to trade them. So, um, and between Aldi and Little, they've op opened well north of a thousand shops in the last 10 years. So inevitably, they've grasped market share. I happen to think that it is true that the existence of the discounters, if I can put it this way, keep the grocers more honest on pricing than they might otherwise be, because otherwise they would steal market share. But um, actually, what you saw during COVID 
his discounters lost market share and grocers regained it. But we are now in an inflationary age, at least a more inflationary age, not back to the 70s or early 80s, but definitely a more inflationary age than the last 30 years or so. The Institute for Fiscal Studies says that the poorest households are actually suffering almost twice as much inflation as the richest. 14%, they say, for the poor households versus 8% uh, for, on average for the others. Out-of-work benefits uh, are down in real terms by the most in 50 years. I mean, doesn't that inevitably mean that people will, perhaps because in the end they have no choice, they will have to go to the discount supermarkets? Well, look, I, I agree completely um, that um, poorer households experience, particularly with this kind of inflation, greater levels of inflation. Actually, I'm quite surprised it's only 2x, because uh, if you look at the proportion of disposable income in the least wealthy households in our country, a very high proportion of their expenditure is energy and food, and therefore um, they will experience uh, much uh, greater uh, inflation. Uh, Jack... Uh, Monroe, um, who's a campaigner on these issues, called it uh, uh, right that um, uh, they were experiencing those high levels. Um, but of course, the presumption in your question is that you go to discounters because that's the only place that you can save money. Yeah, that's just not true, as it happens. Um, clearly, the discounters' proposition is that price, first and foremost, uh, is the reason that you go there. Um, but actually, if you look at the budget ranges of supermarkets, they're typically priced uh, at close to parity with discounters. Can government, should government, do something about this? We've, we've had very recently cash payments to households to help with energy bills. Could government really afford to do the same for food bills or would that just be prohibitively expensive? Well, I don't think the way the government has um, so far faced into this, the, the focus on uh, energy bills um, uh, you've just touched on, to, to my mind, doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, th this is the scale of the problem means that if the government tries to sort of hold back the tide for everybody, it's a commute type problem. They, they, they can't, we can't, they can't afford it. And lest we forget, that means we can't afford it because they don't have their own money. They only have ours. Uh, which they've uh, taxed us one way or the other, and we have the highest levels uh, of tax um, in the lifetime of my father, and he's 85 years old. It's extraordinary. Um, so we can't afford it. So what we have to do is to recognise that some in our society are genuinely suffering disproportionately and focus our investment there. I have no problem at all with the idea that government's job is to provide a safety net that um, society, on the whole, um, can't expect. You know, so for those of us, uh, and that means the vast majority of us, for whom we'll just have to make decisions in our household budget that are different, food, as I said, only 12% on average, that's what we're going to have to do. For those for whom that is not a viable choice, maybe it's a million households, or maybe it's two million households, the government should support sometimes through the benefit system, because some of that issue will be because those people aren't in work. And sometimes it has to be through the tax system, because ultimately we still tax the lowest earners in our society, much disproportionately to most other societies, actually. And you know, let me give you an example. At Sainsbury's, we had an all-colleague bonus scheme and uh, proudly paid out in my time at Sainsbury's nearly a billion pounds on that bonus scheme. 
But every year, around five, six hundred, sometimes nearly a thousand of our colleagues would turn down the bonus because the impact it would have had on their benefits would have meant they suffered a tax rate of more than 100%. That's a trap which the government could stop. That would require a more tapered uh, benefit system so that you, you lose less of your benefit if you uh, earn a bit more. Uh, that was the purpose of, uh, of universal uh, yeah, exactly so. Credit. Well, it, it seems to me that the supplement to universal credit that we did with COVID uh, felt like it worked rather well. Um, and so kind of not quite sure why we've abandoned that as an idea. The government has placed a windfall tax on energy companies because rising prices have turned them into cash machines. That's not my words. That's the words of the chief executive of BP. Uh, any chance the supermarkets face the same risk? Um, well, it, it, these are strange political times, so I'm not sure I can quite answer that <laughs> question. Um, uh, they shouldn't. And look, I, I, mean, I fundamentally um, don't believe windfall taxes are, are a, a good idea. I think that the only legitimate windfall tax is where that windfall is a direct consequence of government decisions. I think that's entirely appropriate in those circumstances. Uh, other windfall taxes, you know, in the end, um, those taxes are being taken off um, those businesses um, to be spent by the Exchequer. I don't believe, on the whole, the government spends money uh, better than commercial organisations do. Um, I, I think that cash will, would have found its way into greater and more rapid investment in green technology. That's, if one takes the long view, a thoroughly good thing. It would have found its way into their share prices and it would have found its way into their dividends. And there are many, many millions of people whose pensions are dependent on that. So one way or another, that tax has been nicked from us as well, uh, actually. So I'm not a fan of windfall taxes. Politicians love to get involved in your uh, supermarket business, probably because uh, food is such an important part of uh, everyday life. Uh, but is now really the right time for well-off politicians to be taking aim at these bog-off deals, the buy-one-get-one-free deals? Um, I mean, at a time when people are just grateful they can afford to buy something to eat. Now's not the right time and never's the right time, um, in, in my view. I mean, it, look, I understand why they do it. It, it is, you know, every single one of their constituents visits one of uh, those brands pretty much every week. I... I I, I once said to a former prime minister, um, you only have to get a vote once every five years or so. We have to get a vote every week. So we're much more democratic businesses than you are. In a way, I, I think it just shows how detached they are from their constituents. Because um, one, it's kind of insulting because you're sort of saying um, to your voters they need to be protected from themselves. And on the whole, they don't. And um, you're sort of saying to them that um, you're going to take uh, some decisions because they can't navigate this, when in fact they're doing a pretty good job uh, navigating it uh, on the whole. So, you know, yes, I think they should keep out of it, but they they won't. <laughs> you mentioned earlier the uh, food poverty campaigner, Jack Monroe, uh, who had said that uh, the prices of some of the cheapest products, so-called value products, was rising faster than others. Uh, ha has she been vindicated in that claim? Is she right? Oh, she's right, yeah. Look, I mean, I... I I work with I I came across Jack probably 10 11 12 years ago 
Um, and, and I thought what she had to, and I was at Sainsbury's at the time, so you wouldn't perhaps naturally think that uh, uh, Sainsbury's and Jack Monroe were a, a natural combination given the issue she's campaigned on. But I thought she had um, something really powerful, and uh, honest and relevant to say. And we worked with Jack Monroe at Sainsbury's 10 years or so ago. So, you know, I've, I've in inverted commas followed her career, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, no, she was spot on. Um, and I, I think she was sort of kind of spot on in three ways. I mean, firstly, we've already discussed um, poorer people um, uh, spend a high proportion of their household budget on the things that are inflating. So they're experiencing a high level of inflation. Secondly, the things that they buy more of are inflating more because that's a kind of double layer. Why? Because the cheaper food that we buy has a much higher uh, cost of goods and labor component proportionate to the retail price so you are going to see higher levels of inflation in cheaper cheapest on display uh, type uh, type products um, and then thirdly and it was she actually you mentioned asda earlier in this conversation she called out asda in particular quite correctly that they were not ranging or actually had deranged stopped stocking that means their cheapest on display product in some shops now, you know, I, look, when I came into Sainsbury's in 2004, it's something Sainsbury's had done. They'd sort of concluded that there were some shops where they didn't have many budget shoppers and there was no need to, to stock budget lines. But that's simply not true. Every single supermarket in the country has some customers who are shopping on a very tight budget. And so for Asda to have taken those cheapest lines out of some shops was a real problem for those customers in those shops. And, it, and then we're not talking about... Um, you know, 5% or 10% rises, quite often, if you take the cheapest on display item away, the next cheapest item will be twice or three times the price. So she was absolutely right to call that out. British supermarkets in modern times, they have, it has a reputation for being, being a competitive sector, uh, a reputation for high quality food, a growing reputation for that, and competitive prices, um, of being, quote, a British success story. Uh, is all of that still deserved? Uh, well, look, I, I think at its heart, that observation is true. One of the things I've done in my not retirement is that I've spoken on the British supermarket industry um, all around the world. I've been to Japan, New Zealand, America, uh, uh, many countries in Europe. And you know what people are interested in hearing about is the uniquely um, efficient and effective uh, grocery businesses in the UK. And they're also very interested in hearing about how that success continues in what is also a very competitive market. You know, the, ultimately, look, I, I'm a capitalist. I mean, competition is the most powerful and positive force um, in our economic system. And supermarkets uh, is why I enjoy, you know, I'm a frustrated sportsman. You know, if you gave me my time again and more talent, you know, I'd love to have been a professional footballer. You know, my childhood hero was Bobby Charlton. That's how old I am. Um, uh, unfortunately, I lacked that talent. It turned out I had a different talent and my competitive instinct um, played out in supermarkets. And um, it's a very measurable, you know, you know every week, 
uh, every day, pretty much, whether you're doing a good or bad job. So that's what makes it so challenging. But for those of us for whom that's what drives us, a lot of fun too. And that competition has led to great outcomes on the whole for consumers. You've been in this sector for a long time, uh, as the most notably, of course, as chief executive for 10 years of Sainsbury's. You're a non-executive director of MS, which is a huge food retailer as well. Through that time that you've been intimately involved with this, what's the biggest change have you seen? In which way has it really been transformed? Well, I, I think if I take the sort of 40-year view, the, the biggest single change has been the sort of integration of the supply chain. Um, you know, when I came into the industry in 1983, that's when I joined the graduate training scheme uh, at Mars. Um, Mars's biggest customers were wholesalers, were cash and carries. There was, a, if you like, an intermediary between the manufacturer and uh, the retailer. In very large part, that intermediary has gone. The relationships now uh, between supermarkets are direct to manufacturer in, in agricultural products, often direct to farmer. Um, Sainsbury's buys all its milk directly from a pool of 300 or so uh, dairy farmers and pays them a premium price uh, uh, to boot. So that removal of that extra intermediary and the supermarket becoming the single point of focus to represent the consumer back into the supply chain. Remember I said that earlier, that is fundamentally the supermarket's job. What side of the table are you sitting on? Are you sitting on the supply chain side of the table or the consumer side? And sitting on the consumer side is where you win, I believe. And, and that is sharper today than it's ever been. And it's the biggest change in my 40 uh, years. I always got the impression that you enjoyed being a chief executive. Um, would you like to be one again? Um, God, yes, gosh, did I enjoy being a chief executive? Absolutely. Look, it's, it's very hard work, as you know. And if you're not enjoying it, um, you probably shouldn't be doing it because it's not going to be good for your health and it's certainly not good for the business, I, I, I would suggest. Um, look, I've been asked that question a lot. Um, I feel a bit like a reformed smoker. You know, most reformed smokers say, you know, gosh, yes, I'd like another fag, but I'm so glad I gave them up. Um, and, I, and I kind of feel a bit like that. I, I do feel that I, I've got being a chief executive out of my system. I enjoyed it tremendously. But I enjoy what I do now tremendously too. I am a bit of a butterfly. I work with about a dozen companies. I'm on a small number of boards. I've just taken the chairmanship of a business called Allwin, um, which subject to the current legal action, is the nominated uh, new operator of the UK National Lottery. And I'm hugely excited about that being the centre of my life for the next two years. So it's it's not a chief exec's role. I, I have a an appointed chief exec, and he's going to be covering the very, very hard yards. What about politics? You've, you've said a number of things in this podcast which shows an interest in public affairs, public policy. Uh, you've got views on these things. Political career, is that something <laughs> you've considered? I've heard, I've, I've, I've heard some Tories say you would make a good uh, candidate for London mayor. Well, look, I've been asked that a lot. And, and, and I said earlier, by the way, you know, that in many ways, being a supermarket TV there is, is, is a more political job with a small p than being a politician because you get that vote uh, every, every week. Um, I, my sort of epiphany on that question was I sat uh, in the back of the car with uh, Richard Cabourn, who was the sports uh, minister in the time, probably around the year 2005, I guess, something of that order. Um, 
And we were going to the opening of a school which we'd supported through our active kids collection scheme in uh, Sainsbury's. And he turned to me and said, you know what? He said, I'm sports minister, but you as a chief executive of Sainsbury's have made more difference to school sport than I'm ever able to make as a sports minister. And it was a kind of epiphany for me, which is I think I'm quite good at business. And what I like to do and get great pleasure and pride from is ensuring that the businesses that I work with play a proper part in contributing to society. I think that what commerce and, and capitalism has got wrong is a belief that it can only take and it has to give in equal measure. It's a it's an old um, Marks and Spencer's motive about you know healthy back streets, healthy high streets. So I, I concluded that doing a great job in business um, was my bigger contribution to society, and that's what I'm trying to do. And that's why you know, look, chairing the lottery uh, will feel firmly, I'm sure, like it's uh, a foot in both of those camps. You know, so ultimately, the purpose of the lottery is to uh, raise money for good causes, causes that are not, on the whole, well and, I think, appropriately supported by governments. That's a, a clear answer. Justin King, thank you. Thank you. Tortoise members and subscribers to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts can hear my reflections on that conversation in a bonus episode called Inside the Interview, which comes out every Friday during this series. You can join our newsroom for £50 a year by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash Andrew and entering the code andrewneil 50 That's five zero and all one word. This episode was mixed by Studio Klong with original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer of The Backstory is Lewis Vickers. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.